Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 521st episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Greg Peterson coming to you from the urban farm in the heart of Phoenix, Arizona. Thank you so much for being here. We greatly appreciate your presence and questions. I am here tonight with Bill McDormand. Welcome, Bill. Hello, Greg. It's a pleasure and an honor, as always, to be here. Man, it is so much fun doing these with you. We have been doing them going on. Well, I think we launched our first Seed School Online course about five years ago. Can you believe that? Oh, man. <laughs> and, and that came out of, nope. it's really curious, that came out of, I came to Tucson in 2011 to your uh, residential Seed School course. And I, yeah. I think I pitched it to you at that time. I said, we need to do one of these online. So from, from there, we got online. So, yay. Well, it, we didn't just get it. That was a lot of hard work on your part. So I want to thank you and the Urban Farm for doing that because it takes way more work than I thought it would going in. Oh. And, you know, it's really important. I think we've got these new tools to get other good ideas out. And uh, yep. so let's use them while we can. Yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> I noticed that Stacy has her hand up in the online portal. <laughs> we've never taken questions like that, although I would be willing, Stacy, to take a question for me that way. If yeah. you're interested, that would be awesome. So Bill McDormand is the director, executive director of Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance. He is the uh, co-creator of Seed School and Seed School Online, along with Bell Star, his partner. Welcome tonight, Bill. What are we going to be talking about? Well, let's let's talk about the the big winter buzz for most gardeners. Is that I've seen a lot of posts in social media about this is catalog season and it's exciting and people love to stay up late and dream about you know greener, wonderful, warmer days when they can get back out into the garden and they do that via all the new colorful pictures and descriptions of unimaginable things, you know, that seem to show up year after year after year. Yeah. And so I thought I'd just give a little bit of an overview of catalogs to make you a better catalog buyer, if that's really what you want to do. And, and just by way of disclosure, I'm going to try to talk you out of it too, <laughs> in some ways, at least for some things. I think that we've finally lived our way into the future 
enough that there are uh, there's a tremendous amount of locally adapted diversity available yeah. to most of us now that we can uh, learn to tap into and take advantage of so that we don't have to buy. And in the end, yeah, somebody was asking me about this the other day about selling seeds. And, you know, if it was a nonprofit and they're thinking about selling seeds to help fund the nonprofit. And mm -hmm. I've been involved in that several times in my life. And that can work. I mean, most gardeners are consumers and most consumers only know how to get into new stuff, new information, new products by buying them. And so mm -hmm. if you're selling mm -hmm. seeds, you fit right into that paradigm and, and, you know, whether you agree with that or not, that just happens to be the dominant paradigm. Over the last five years, however, I've changed. After owning my own seed company and selling seeds for 28 years even, and I'm still a big fan of people that want to do that, and I and I love to train especially young new people who want to start their own seed companies. But what I've learned is that seeds are a better community-building device mm, if they're mm -hmm. not if they're not sold, that, you know, that something happens when you sell people that ends the relationship between the buyer and the seller. You you, you pay for them, you take them, and then you're, they're yours. But when you share seeds, some of the responsibility and the awareness of what's going on is kept in both parts. And then you, lots of people who have had seeds shared with them, then feel, it feels nice, but sometimes even feels like a responsibility that you should share them. And, and that simple process helps to build a community, whether that ends up being seed exchanges or seed libraries, whether that brings together people from different political persuasions just because they both like the same seed, whatever it is. You know, I've just found that the further you get seeds away from money, the more this other kind <laughs> of magic comes out. And so that's what yeah. I'm as a, you know, I'm 65 now. I, I can wax eloquently as I can about dreamy things like that. And that's, that's what, that's what I'm going to try to do tonight, just a little bit. Nice. Well, I'm going to actually jump in here and we're going to start the questions a little bit earlier. I know you got more to say, but this question that Steve from Idaho asked is exactly what you're talking about there. So Steve from hey. Idaho says, do you know of any seed companies that don't outsource for seeds they sell? <laughs> Good question. That's one of the things I wanted to sort of, you know, shed some light on about buying seeds from seed catalogs is that there is, there are almost no seed companies mm -hmm. that don't get some seeds at least from somewhere else. And many of the companies that, you know, many of us know and love and trust get very few of the seeds that they sell from their own company that they grow themselves. Yeah, And so it was really frustrating. I mean, when I had high altitude gardens, I that was the hardest part was trying to develop a network of growers. What I tell people all the time is that this whole notion of farming, growing your own food or even grow or growing for a business, 50 percent of it is actually the growing part. And 50% of it, and these aren't exact numbers, but 50% of it is the market picking, packing, marketing. And that would be the same with seeds as well. And I find with my fruit tree program, I'd be hard pressed to grow the trees that we sell in our urban farm fruit tree program and sell them. It's one right. or the other. So I suspect right. that, that it's the same with seeds. Well, it is. It's a lot to do. And so, and I think as Don Tipping, who owns Siskiyou Seed, says, you know, it's really hard to steward on your own more than maybe 20 to 40 varieties of things. Right. You know, as a small family company. And so if you see a seed catalog that's got more offerings than that, then you know they're sourcing from somewhere else. 
or they're not just not doing a really great job at what they're doing. And so, you know, there are just some physical limits for, for that's what we've learned over the last 20 years in the United States and all our market gardeners or whatever is it. It's just really a, a difficult thing to do. And when I was a seed company, I didn't know, I don't think there was a single one that I was um, dealing with, you know, consistently that grew all their own seed. Now, that being said, in this modern era, there's a whole new wave of more idealistic and devoted young growers, especially, who mm-hmm. are dedicated to doing or trying to do that anyway. I'm thinking of my good friends at Found Root Seeds in Palmer, Alaska. You know, they're trying to wow. sell seeds that are adapted to Palmer, Alaska, that they actually are trying to be able to grow in, in Alaska. And so, you know, that's a that's a hard thing to do. And I think they've even had to expand now into a few other things. You know, there's a wonderfully beautiful seed company in Utah called Grand Prismatic Seeds. And they just don't offer very many varieties of things, but they either wildcraft them or, I believe, or grow them themselves. So there are some, you know, things like this, you know, that people are starting to do. I think a more realistic way of approaching this for the rest of us that are willing to compromise a little bit and realizing that we're in a transition. I mean, my goal would be to have everybody grow their own seeds. And if you're going to sell them, sell them or or exchange them or trade them or whatever in each little region, you know, that's, right. that is my goal. But until we get to there and you look at seed catalogs, I'll bring it back to that. Look in the catalog and see how much they tell you about where each specific variety actually comes from, who grew it. I know that Don Tipping at Siskiyou Seeds does this. Every seed in there is marked with a a grower uh, code so that you, even though Don doesn't grow all of them now, as he's grown his company, he knows who grows them all and he has relationships with them and he writes them down. And then if you want to do more research about where they, you know, got the seeds originally or how they grow it or whatever, then you can do that. And that kind of accountability, that transparency, I think is what we should all demand as catalog seed buyers. And I think as we start to ask our catalogs more and more about that, more and more of them will respond. And so, you know, that's just what I would say. Another one of my favorite companies, Miss Penn's Mountain Seeds. Um, oh, yes. She, She's been on the podcast. She, yeah, she grows all her own tomatoes. We know that. You know, so there are people that are starting to do this. But if you don't know, ask. Always ask. Find out where your seeds are grown. And this is really important if you want to adapt them quickly. If you're going to save your own seeds from them and you want to adapt them to your own garden, why not get something that's already partially or wholly adapted to what you're doing? And I'll just mention one other company, the Snake River Seed Co-op in Boise, Idaho. Casey O'Leary there has put together a fantastic operation and they list all their growers and they have grower meetings and you can see pictures of them all. And she's actually talked into or trained many of those growers who are market farmers or doing other things who now have the seed bug. And they don't want to do, as you said, Greg, it's really hard, yeah. you know, to do all the packaging and all the selling and whatever. And so these are people that love seeds, want to grow them, but they don't want to do that. So they've got a cooperative to do that now. And they all partake in the profit somehow through the Snake yeah. River Seed Co-op. And I think they have 15, maybe more than 15 growers now. So that's good. Nice. So let's just review that real quick for him. Siskiyou Seeds is S-I-S-K-I-Y-O-U. Siskiyou Seeds. Great website. It's, it says on the front page, over 80 new varieties coming for 2020 and 30 new farmers, seven seed farms. That's what it is. Our family farm, yeah. they have seven seed farms. So that's Siskiyou Seeds. What are the other two you mentioned? I mentioned, well, I mentioned Pens Mountain Seeds is one of them. Yep. 
I mentioned gra- Grand Prismatic. I, lo- I just love the name, and I love the idealism behind this. You know, they get the picture. We're, we're going to need our own seeds at some point if we're really yeah. going to be serious about these permaculture and these sustainable gardening and farming projects. That's yeah. just all there is to it. Can't call it sustainable if all the seeds come from thousands of miles away or continents away. And so these guys are really dedicated, and so I love love that kind of dedication. So Right. Well, and local food needs local seeds. Yeah. Well, it just, that way, that kind of makes sense to me. <laughs> right. And then the, yeah, yeah. The other one I mentioned was found root seeds. Oh yes. I went wonderful friends. Well, in and Palmer, so, Alaska. So going to the ends of the earth to take this beautiful work. So back to uh, Steve in Idaho, seed companies that don't outsource their seeds. So what we really have to do, and Bill and I have talked about this for years, is start local growers, get people growing local seeds. And one of the things that Bill and Bell and Kari and I started, can you believe it's been six years, Bill? Six years ago is the Great American Seed Up. If you go to greatamericanseedup.com, you can find out more about it. Basically what it is, it's a huge bulk seed buy. So it's like your bulk seed bins at the grocery store, but for seeds. And we have systems. Janice is amazing at what she does. And we've put together systems where somebody walks into a room and there's a hundred different varieties of open pollinated seeds in the room. And people can scoop a teaspoon of basil, which is like 10 packs of seeds for a dollar and a quarter. And it comes with a business card that says everything about the seed on it. And the reason I bring this up now is all of most of our seeds come from far away for the great American seed up because we just don't have the growers here to be able to grow enough seeds to do something like this and scale up a system where there's 4.8 million people that live in the Phoenix metropolitan area. So what we do is we do the great American seed up plus we do all kinds of education, teaching people how to save their own seeds and share them. So the education part is a built-in piece of it. So there are things you can do, but Steve, we have to take this on and do it ourselves. We can't count on anybody else. Well said. Well said. Yeah. The goal should be when you buy seeds from a catalog, that catalog shouldn't be there every year for you to buy, you know, to get all your seeds. Yeah. You know, catalogs should be there to get your passion up in the winter <laughs> and right. and to supply new things that you can then learn to save yourself. Everything you buy should start to save and start to bring it yep. in and adapt it to your own local conditions. And so, you know, that's that's a whole different definition. That's when you move out of being a consumer to a gardener. <laughs> to a producer, yeah. You know, two, as little as two generations ago, every gardener saved their own seeds. That was just part and parcel of the experience. You know, you've heard me say this before. If you really want to be a great gardener, don't buy seeds every year, the best seeds you can find. Take the best of what you found growing in your garden that year into the next year. That's your momentum. And you can do that by saving the seeds from those varieties that perform best for you. I mean, that's an incredible thing. You know, and so the game of gardening doesn't become, oh, I got to get an early start and I've got to have the best seeds so I can do the best this year. The game becomes, how can I pay attention to what I'm growing enough and save seeds so that my garden gets better year after year after year, decade after decade, right where I am? That's gardening. <laughs> nice. Absolutely. E from Heldsburg someplace says, is there a 
part one of this topic, is it available to watch online? It's actually – you can watch it on YouTube, on our YouTube channel, but you can also listen to it on the podcast. And we actually get – we usually get – in fact, here, let me just tell you here. There are 15 – we have uh, 37 – we have about 50 people on the call right now. And the last month's podcast or what last month's seed chat, which we turned into a podcast, which released this morning. So we basically what we do is we do the seed chat and then the next month, the day of the seed chat, we release we release the podcast. And last month's uh, seed chat has already received 1,142 listens today. So we wow. do these live for the people that want to interact with us live, but also we do them as a podcast so you can listen up. So if you go to urbanfarmpodcast.com, it'll be the first one on the list there. You can listen listen to your heart's content. Plus, oh my gosh, we've probably done 40 of these, haven't we, Bill? <laughs> They're all on there. You know, I see there. it. I, the last time I've come, how many podcasts have you done? 510 was today's release, I think. Oh my God. So if you I have know. not gone to uh, urbanfarm.org or to the podcast yep. and listen, then you're missing some of the great discussions and interviews that I've ever heard around these issues. Well, you know, uh, Greg, your, your interviews of Elliot Coleman and John oh Jevon. You know, they're, they're just unbelievably fabulous. These guys are the elders now. They've mm-hmm. been doing this stuff for their whole lives, and they've got a lot of really important things to say at this point in their lives as they get into their late 60s or 70s. Yeah. And so, man, you got it. You nailed it by spending an hour or two on the phone with these guys, and I think it's just they're invaluable. So all that stuff's on the, on your podcast also. Yeah, no kidding. So uh, as you were saying that, I was getting a little chilled and excited because coming up in two weeks, I've got David Holmgren on the podcast. Oh, and for those of you God. that don't know who David Holmgren is, he's the co-creator of Permaculture. And it was wow. an amazing, it was an amazing episode. We'll get back to Q&A here in a minute, guys. I'm sorry, but <laughs> I just get so excited about this. It was an amazing episode. So, so I did the same thing with Joel Salatin and a couple, a couple other people. I just set the recording to go because I usually keep the podcast about 30 to 40 minutes. But when these guys come on, I just I, I let it record. He talked. David Holmgren talked for an hour and a half. I just, I just let him, I just let him go. It's, and it's going to be, if you're listening to this on our podcast, look back two weeks on our list of podcasts because it looks like it'll be podcast 516, 517, and 518. We split them up when they get that long. We split them up. So, all right. Wow. Yeah. That's, don't, that's don't miss uh, uh, Michael Abelman. Oh my Either. gosh! That's, yes. I think that's one of my fav- favorite ones you've done. And he's got a new book out, and I'm going to get him again. So, which, oh. interesting story about Michael Abelman. Uh, when I had Michael Abelman on the podcast, I was actually nervous. I don't get nervous interviewing people, but he's like one of my—he's one of my heroes in the world. So I was actually a little nervous. All right, I'm going to jump in. <laughs> Hannah from Boulder, can you chat about the OSSI and how you see that being integrated into seed catalogs? Bill, do you agree? with the ability to still sell seed, but have it within the OSSI. So first of all, what is OSSI? Open Source Seed Initiative. And uh, yes, I do agree. I, I love the Aussie, as we lovingly call it. I think it's a really a wonderful, it's a formalized system to recognize that we should and need to keep seeds in the commons. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, you can argue that yeah, that you want it part of the gift economy. It can help build community better, as I've been talking about. But the way they do it, it actually just helps biologically. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's almost necessary with so much stuff being patented that it's can is probably and will even more in the future pinch good plant breeding, even at the highest levels, because people won't have access to material anymore. You know, if you put a utility patent on a plant, nobody's able to grow it. Seed saving ends, farmer's exemption ends, breeder's exemptions end. It's theirs. And so that locks up a lot of material that we may or may not need and get passed around real quickly in the next 20 years as we face climate change. That's my take on it. So what Aussie does is it takes open source idea from the software companies. And it says that you can have this and you can do whatever you want with it. But if you try to patent it and you start with an Aussie variety, you can't. (laughs) In other words, it's supposed to stay in the comments. It doesn't mean that, that you can't take an Aussie variety and develop it yourself, even change it and sell it and make money on it. It's just that you can't then patent it. And so that's a great idea. And it's really a wonderful one. It does not substitute, however, you know, for protection from patenting. It does for the few varieties that developers are creating new varieties that can fall under the requirements to be an Aussie variety. Requirement number one is that it has to be a new variety. In other words, we can't take all the old open pollinated stuff that most of us love and still use and save seeds from and um, put it into Aussie so that it can't be patented. That's just not not going to happen. But for the new varieties that are being produced by breeders, this gives those breeders another option than to just patent it to keep other big companies from patenting it. Mm -hmm. And so I like the whole idea. And I'm not against buying or selling seeds starting companies and buying and selling them and nothing, I hope nothing I say, I'm starting to get careful about this, will be conceived that I don't, uh, uh, as telling people how to get their own seeds. I don't, I don't want to be judgmental about that. We're all on our own level and we'll find our own way. You know, I have my way and it's based on 40 years experience and I will talk about that. But, but if people want to buy and sell seeds, that's fine. I am against patenting them. I just think that's inconsistent. Yeah. And I'll argue, and I'll argue with people about that because I don't think anyone should own them to the point of uh, restricting all seed saving. If it's really important for a new young company to protect something that, uh, that they bred, they could always protect it using the Plant Variety Protection Act which really is run through the USDA and really isn't a patent. It just gives them a 20-year head start on their variety, um, selling it, the seeds for it, and it's only mm-hmm. the seeds that it protects. But it allows for growers' exemptions and, and breeders' exemptions, and th- that's really important. That means if you buy a protected variety, a, a PVP variety, and you'll see some of these things, and I'll get back to catalogs for a second. As you look through our modern, even organic seed catalogs, uh, you will see varieties now that are marked PVP, and that means they have this protection. If something comes with that protection, it means you can't grow the seeds and start a company or sell the seeds unless you pay a royalty or get in touch with the people that hold the protection. You can save your own seeds, however, and do whatever you want with and use them all you want. And breeders in universities and other places who want to keep working on projects don't have to wait 20 years to use your material to create new projects. And if they do create a new project, they they have to get in touch with the owner of the the protection. And so, you know, our government was pretty good about kind of, I thought, now in retrospect, coming up with this sort of middle ground. This was legislation passed in the 70s. And in retrospect, it looks pretty progressive compared to 
utility patents, which are also now showing up in our catalogs, as I said earlier, completely end seed saving. And so that's what I'll say about that. Yeah, well, and good see, question. Yeah, and speaking to selling seeds, I mean, we do live in, and I say this very lightly, we do live in a somewhat of a capitalist society. And so to get people motivated to grow these things out, sometimes you need to add a little bit of, I'll call it the greed factor to get them to get that done. So that, that helps the system move forward in some ways. So, yeah. you know, selling seeds is, is not necessarily a bad thing and by any means. No, I think that's just happens to be the world. We're not going to change that probably in our lifetimes. Right. However, for those of you that want to be progressive, you have, you're listening to somebody tonight on this podcast who's been involved with seed since 1979. I've been the director of million dollar seed conservation organizations. I own my own seed company for 28 years. What I believe now is that, um, we have way more potential to build community and to actually build resilient seed systems by not selling seeds. I just I think we're coming through and there's huge potential now with seed libraries and seed exchanges and new community other, you know, to be named seed systems. And so that's where I'm going. I've come through the whole thing and I'm not going to criticize anybody who wants to go in at any of the levels and get the experiences I did. As I said, I sold seeds for a long time and I still believe in small regional seed companies. I really do. And mm-hmm. I always go out of my way to try to help them survive. There's a lot to learn about how to do that. Bless them. But giving the few short years I have left, I'm, I'm going in. I think I've listened to Greta today at Davos in Switzerland. I'm, I, I think there's a big wake up call to take it to a new level. And so that's yeah. where I'm trying to go. Big time, big time. Well, and so one of the, so there's 4.8 million people in Phoenix and we started the Great American Seed Up to energize the local seed economy, I'll call it. And I mentioned Great American Seed Up a little earlier, greatamericanseedup.com. And it's education behind it. But our, our biggest challenge here in Phoenix is that we just don't have seeds here. We don't, yeah. you know, if there was a seed shortage, if there was some kind of disruption in the system, the seeds that we have are basically at the Home Depots and the nurseries of the world, which is, you know, couldn't be more than about, 10 or 20,000 packets of seeds, which would disappear overnight. So, you know, having some kind of system in place where we can super energize the local seed economy, like the Great American Seed Up, is really important. So that, that was one thought I had. Another thought that I had, and it came back to me from a little while ago, I save seeds, but I don't really save them in my yard. You and I have talked about this before. Basically, I have a food forest in my yard, and I let some things go to seed every year so that they come back. And and the way the seeds get saved is that they just blow in the wind. And then they come back year after year after year. And here at the Urban Farm, and this is why I use open pollinated seeds only, but every year I have nasturtiums, I have cowpeas, I have parsley, I've got basil, I've got oregano. I, you know, there's, there are at least two dozen different things that come back year after year after year just because I've planted them right in the first place. Yes. And you're creating seeds for varieties that are adapted to where you are. They are, you know, and that's what's so magical. This is what you miss when you don't save seeds or don't Mm -hmm. think about it. I mean, how many years has your basil been growing now in 100 and whatever degree Phoenix, you know, weather? 
The the interesting thing about the basil is some years it shows up and some years it doesn't. The interesting thing about the cowpeas and nasturtiums and the lettuce, they come back year after year after year. And I think I planted the nasturtiums in my front yard 28 years ago. And wow. that was the last time I planted them. Now they just grow wild throughout the property. Wow. Yeah. That's great. See, that's what I'm looking for. Right. It's exactly. something that, that grows with me and gets better. Yeah. It's it's about food forests. It's about permaculture. Uh, you know, it's about paying attention to your landscape. So Neil from Elizabeth, I don't know where Elizabeth is at, but that sounds like Col- a cool uh, Col- Yeah, Colorado. Colorado. Probably. Neil says, yeah. having a new attractive squash, how could I market it to a company that sells seeds? That's a great question. Yeah. You know, if if it's yours and if you are in Colorado, wherever you are, I would reach out in concentric circles. Find who is um, selling seeds that's closest to you and ask them first. And, you yeah. know, this model of seed co-ops is starting to to show up again. There is the Triple Divide Seed Co-op in Western Montana now, Sierra Seed Co-op in Northern California, and I, I talked about the Snake River Seed Co-op in Boise, Idaho, which, you know, it's, this isn't just, I've developed a new squash and I'm going to sell the seed to a seed company so they can sell it model is you become more of a partner with them. And actually, in my experience, many of the small companies, this is exactly what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. This is what will drive business to their websites and to their sales is if they've got unique stuff that's developed by someone like yourself locally. I mean, this is pure gold stuff. So congratulations on that. And I think you're doing the right thing. If you go to the Rocky Mountain Seeds Alliance website, rockymountainseeds.org, on our website under resources, you can move the mouse down over seed businesses. And then a submenu comes up called search directories. And we have, uh, I just looked, 54 seed companies that have signed up on our website in a directory sense. And you can get information and connect with them directly out of that. And they talk about a lot of them on the site about their mission or philosophy and or specifics about what they're looking for or what they sell. And so you might get lots of new ideas. And, you know, we're the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance. And so if you're in the Rocky Mountains, this might be a nice place for you to find a place, a home. And and what I would look for is a long-term partnership with somebody. Somebody who really values what you're doing, mm-hmm. will treat you right, will pay you what you think it's worth, and together you can go forward and, and start a partnership. And who knows where it'll go because you've just become one of the most important links in this whole change to exactly. bring all, all the seeds for the Rocky Mountains from the Rocky Mountains. And that's, you know, that's the goal of our nonprofit. So, well, and congratulations Neil, on Neil, I have a dare for you. If you really have <laughs> a new squash, We need to talk about that on the Urban Farm Podcast because what I look for on the podcast, and as we talked about earlier, that we have over over 500 episodes that we put out, you know, some with rock stars like we talked about earlier and others with backyard rock stars just like you who developed a new squash. Those are the kind of stories that I want to tell on the podcast. So I dare you to email me, greg at urbanfarm.org, and say, I want to be on your podcast, and I will get you the link 
so that you can tell your story about how this happened. And don't think for one minute, some people, when I extend that invitation to them, it's like, oh, I don't have a short story to shelf to, to share. I say bullshit to that. I say (laughs) if you've developed a new attractive squash, you have a story to tell. And as Bill was sharing, I had this thought a moment ago. Your story, the story behind this squash is what's going to have it sell and is what's going to have it last in in the perpetuity. There's a really famous squash that got started. Do you know which one I'm talking about, Bill, that has the name for the person that started it? Well, you know, there's Waltham Butternuts. That's what I'm thinking about. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah that's the best-selling winter squash in the world. Yep. There's a million million pounds of it are grown all mm-hmm. over the world. And it's just an op- open pollinated variety that was found in the backyard of an insurance salesman in Pennsylvania in the 60s. How cool is that? <laughs> Terry from Maricopa says, is there an app to download for the lessons from Seed School that I don't – so he doesn't have to search through his emails to find – and connect with the lessons. Uh, not yet, but thank you for planting that seed, Terry. I have an app developer who is a very good friend of mine, and I will have a conversation with him about that. Laura from Calispell, Montana says, after a few years of saving and replanting seed potatoes, the yields get smaller and the potatoes are smaller and less healthy. Why does this happen? And is it possible to keep seed potatoes healthy for many generations? I've actually, before you jump in on that one, I've noticed that with some of my seeds too here, Bill. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I don't know. I can't give you a definitive answer because there's so many other variables involved. Mm-hmm. However, there, you know, inbred depression is something that all, you know, larger scale farmers look at and seed people learn about. And what that means is that you don't have a large enough population. How many different pepper or uh, potato plants do you save potato seed from? Oh, yeah. You know? That might be part of it. I, you know, potatoes are a bit of a mystery to me. I've never grown them on a large enough scale to, or long enough in one place to experience what you're experiencing. So generally, though, you know, nature favors heterosity, they call it, uh, diversity. And so the more, you know, to bring in new seed from somewhere else is something that almost every farmer has to do on every level of plant breeding at one time or another. That totally closed off populations start to change and uh, not for the good. If there's any inbreeding at all, see, the potatoes don't breed. You're just saving the clones. Exactly. Yeah. But they still, but they're still changing. You know, that's why, you know, first I would question all of the cultural practices in which you're growing. Are they being grown in the same place? Are you rotating them enough? Are there, is the soil as good? All, all those things can play a part first. But then generally, I'm, and I'm expanding this beyond potatoes, that, you know, inbred depression is something that uh, almost every seed breeder deals with at some level or another. And so having new, new stuff come in is always probably a good idea. My potato growing friends that are growing new varieties have yet to tell me that that's been a problem for them. So you've um, piqued an interest in me and I will do further research. Again, if you want to uh, email me, you could do that at bill at seedsave.org and I'll, and, and what that'll do is key my memory. And when I find out more, I'll try to get back to you. But great question. What is in, inbreeding depression? What did you call it? Well, inbred depression. I mean, we understand this because we were taught as young people that we're not supposed to marry our cousins. Mm, right. That there, have, that, there, that there have been, you know, towns in the United States and villages around the world that were closed off 
And so the population there bred amongst itself. It's inbred, right? Didn't bring in new new uh, genetics. And when that happens, it's easier for recessive genes to line up and express. This would be a, a really simple way of explaining it. So you have to have two recessives at a at a location in order for whatever expression, you know, it's going to actually be seen in the plant. And so if you have fewer people breeding and they're, they're just breeding amongst themselves over and over again, it's more likely, it's just a dice throw, that those that recessives will line up and start expressing. And so you could get all sorts of strange things happening. And usually recessive genes implant, and again, I'm getting way out there and, and generalizing, usually recessive genes are weaker or they're recessive right. for a reason. Nature's found a way to like to put them to bed and to start to get rid of them in the evolution of things. And so once you get more recessives, you know, showing up, uh, one of the first things that's lost, and this is again, another general breeding term is vigor. The plants just don't, they're not as vigorous. They don't get as tall. They don't get as um, vibrant. They're, the fruits that they, if they're producing fruits, aren't as big, that sort of thing. And so the remedy is always to bring in new um, material and to, and to bring in new genetics, new dominant genes to help hide all those recessives. So I'll just leave it. I could get, get into it even more. And if, if people have other questions, you could have follow-ups, I guess. Yeah, perfect. Stephanie from San Luis says... Do you foresee the establishment of local seed companies as a route to achieving the UN Sustainable Development Goals? If so, how could we encourage governments and other organizations to invest in their development? What are some of the challenges? So before you actually answer that question, was it was two months ago that you were at the UN at the seed meeting, and we actually talked about that, I think, in the November seed chat. So if right. you go back to if you go back to Urban Farm Podcast, you can hear all about his trip to the UN, Bill and Bell's trip to the UN and their experience there. So do you need me to repeat the question now that I confused you a little no, bit? No, I can I can I'm gonna try to answer it, you know, succinctly. It's a it's a deep, deep question. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the answer could go on for weeks probably. I generally yes. It would be great for the uh, United Nations and for governments to put resources into the establishment of a small entrepreneurial seed companies that are regionally based, that are taking advantage of the genetics in their region and adapting things to where they are so that farmers need less inputs, less pesticides and herbicides to approach the the pests that may be attacking them and that whether the either the droughts or the floods or whatever that are coming their way, you know, that if they're adapted or used to that climate, they'll be that way. And that's a rational way forward. And whether we do that through small seed companies or we do it through exchanges or or as they, around the world is what they're starting to call small new community seed banks. However, we decentralize and get this happening everywhere with people. And that's what we really, really have to do. Unfortunately, the United States and Canada and European companies do argue for the privatization of seeds and, and seed companies. Yeah. However, their talk is um, largely around the, uh, the uh, gene giants, the seed monopolies, and leveraging their largeness for into biotech and things like that. And so realistically, to even get our government involved in this on some level, you know, <laughs> on a conscious level, I mean, I think it's tricked into this all the time with the SARE grants, 
There's a lot of money that comes through the organic, uh, national organic program when it's funded every year for research. I think a lot of that's being used, you know, to, to start these small enterprises and especially more and more around seeds and to do really great research. But, you know, uh, on the official level, I think the amount of money that our government gives out for companies to use for breeding, for companies or nonprofits to use for breeding, it's 70 to 1. 70 times the amount for biotech, which means large, huge companies, and one for public plant breeding, which would incorporate, I think, what you're trying to talk about, small. What we used to have, you know, we don't have to dream that having small companies everywhere would be a great idea. We had it, you know, in the 30s and 40s and 50s. Every valley, every region had a seed company. It was so elegant and so beautiful. Many of them were family ones, and some grew up to be giants like burpees, but man, it's that. That whole storied history of the United States is just like since chills. You can go to the USDA website and there's, they've got an archive and you can look at catalogs and pictures and seed packets of all the named companies from that era. And it was just a beautiful, beautiful, resilient expression of what I think we should try to get back to. But I'm not holding my breath for any real big government help. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and you shouldn't. So I've got one more question for, well, maybe one or two more questions, but this is Denise. She put this up, up on the site 12 days ago. Thanks, Denise. So, uh, but I need it to be a short answer. First of all, she says, thanks as always for our fascinating seed chats. A while ago, you talked about growing peppers in a northern climate, and she was wondering if there are any varieties, seasonal varieties, short season varieties that might do well in the cold weather. Thoughts on that? Yes. Um, you know, when I, um, about I 10 years into high altitude gardens, we ran across a new hybrid pepper. It was called ACE, A-C-E, and then an F1. It was an F1 hybrid. And it claimed, and it showed in our growing at 6,000 feet in the mountains of central Idaho year after year, that it did indeed set fruit even when overnight temperatures got cold, even down to freezing. I mean, wow. if, if it froze and and the plant got killed, that was one thing. But if the plant lived, you would still get peppers, even if it was cold. And that was unusual for us. And sort of, you know, the general knowledge that we had at the time was that below 40 degrees Fahrenheit, pepper pollination just doesn't take place. It's just too cold for it. Mm-hmm. And I won't get into all the reasons about that. And so this pepper claimed to have found a trait that overcame that. They probably found it on a wild pepper somewhere and bred it in. And it was one that came maybe high in the Andes. I don't know where it came from, but I didn't know the grandparents for this hybrid pepper. However, what my father and I started doing immediately, since the pepper was not patented, is start to dehybridize it. In other words, we saved seeds from that F1 hybrid. And that first year, we grew out 200 of them, and we only got about eight pepper plants that look like the sweet pepper, the green sweet pepper that Ace looked like. So we saved those seeds and we grew them out again. And the next year we got about 16 plants. And I'm, I'm giving you a lesson in seed breeding. The next yeah. year you'll get twice as many, about 32 plants. And if you do this about eight generations, and if you have a greenhouse and think about it, you could probably do this in three or four years or less. You could get to eight years, the eighth generation, and virtually all of them. You'd have a working population of an open pollinated pepper that actually sets fruit in cold temperatures. And that's, if you, I, I don't know of others. I haven't searched the literature since to see if anyone else has come up with a, a pepper like that. But that's uh, key for you to try to solve the problem. Nice. That's how I, 
approach the problem and solve it. Nice. All right, I got a couple more questions here, but they got to be quick because we're kind of running okay. short on time. Stacy from Appalachian, where does so on the website RockyMountainSeeds.org, she's not finding the seed companies. Okay, I um, if you on our homepage across the top is a menu, um, a join about us programs attend, and the next one is called resources. And if you will go on resources down to seed businesses, and a little submenu comes up and there's a seed business list. And that's just a list that we've compiled. And we I haven't kept up with it for a couple of years. Below that, oh. it says add your own seed business. And the 54 people that have added their own seed businesses, you can find by the third menu item on that menu called search directory. And when that comes up, all you have to do at the bottom of the form that comes up, because you can limit your search however you want. Don't limit it. Just hit the search button and a list of, and they all come up. And then right at the top, it also says map these contacts. If you click that, a map of all of them comes up and there'll be a link to each of them that you can find that way also. Perfect. All right. Hannah, Hannah from Boulder, Colorado says, how do we know where bulk seeds that the seed companies are selling are coming from. With a little searching I have done, Johnny's Burpee, Fairy Morse, some lead back to Syngenta, Saccata, and Seminus. What does this mean? <laughs> well, for me, it doesn't mean good. One of my favorite people in Idaho, one of the first four organic farmers in Idaho, real farmers, who's a hero, I think, because of all the stuff he had to put up with back in the day, you know, they were called witches, almost tarred and feathered and run out of town if they could have because they weren't doing it the other way. But anyway, this friend of mine became a seed grower for Johnny's. And for more than 13 years, he had contracts every year and was growing great seed for Johnny's in Idaho, which is a great place to grow seed. He was doing it organically. And all of a sudden, one year, this was a number of years ago, he got a letter saying, I'm sorry, no contracts. And he wrote, wrote to Johnny and said, what happened? And he says, oh, you're too small now. Johnny's is now a $60 million a year company. Wow. And they have moved those kinds of contracts to China. Uh, which ones? We don't know. Aye. It's a private company. But I do know that about what happened to my friend and the seed growing that was being done near me. And so, yeah. you know, when I was when I was with High Altitude Gardens, I tried to add up the amounts of all the seeds sold by all the small seed companies through their catalogs. You got to remember, this was before the internet, even mm-hmm. you know, or just yep. as it was getting started, and it was about fifty million dollars in sales. That was the best number that we could come up with nationally for the whole nation. And now one company has $60 million in sales. Wow. And that's big. And so, again, let's not go at this whether it's right or wrong. Let's go at this from we need to know. So what I would do is write to Johnny's. I need to know where this variety that I'm going to buy is actually being grown. Thank you. That's the kinds of questions that we need to keep asking. So. And then the rest of it we can talk about in another show, and I have talked about because now 42% of the lettuce seeds in the Johnny's catalog, these are certified organic. This is open pollinated. Mm-hmm. This is the stuff we save. 42% of those are now utility patented. Utility patented. You cannot save the seeds. You're not even supposed to let it go to seed. Yeah. And so if you want to zone in on the problem, that's where, the, where we're going as an organization about that is trying to get more information out about that. Yeah, well, as and, well as where, they, and that'll come from learning where they come from. And I, I and I know you won't say this, but I will. Who's going to know if you save the seeds? Don't. Oh, did I say that? Oh. <laughs> and next uh, question. 
There's where you <laughs> go. <laughs> One more question. This actually, this question is for me. It looks like this is from Stacy again from Appalachian, and uh, she says, "Do you suggest using seeds or grafting for fruit trees? Which is actually better?" It depends. There are some plants, trees, fruit trees that are pretty true. So guavas are pretty true. So if you have a guava seed, you know, there's some genetic variability, but they're pretty true to seed. Apples, on the other hand, are not. So, you know, apples, peaches, apricots, plums are all grafted pomegranates and figs are actually can be root grown so they're uh you know grown on their own rootstock so you do a cutting of it or do air layering so it you know it makes its own roots and then you go from there so to get the consistency of a nice peach let's say uh, you're going to want to do you're going to want to have it grafted one of my dreams here at the urban farm and i grow a lot of peaches from seeds and so far i've probably grown and grown up and harvested 20 peach trees from seeds in the past 20 years here at the urban farm and i've cut them all out because the peaches just aren't any good but one of my dreams here at the urban farm is to actually grow one from seed have it be a really good peach and then take cuttings and have it sold through dave wilson nursery that's where we get our trees from and have it called the urban farm peach. So I, that's one of the yes. legacies I'd like to see. Yeah, the light that I'd like to see behind. But mostly, Stacy, it's best to graft trees if you can. All right, that looks like we're it. We are almost one hour into this. Denise from Amaranth says, "Many thanks, Bill, for your answer about F Ace F1 peppers. Found them at William Dam D A M Seeds in Canada. Well, there you go." Great. There you go. And I want to thank you, Bill, for joining us yet again. You can find out more information about Rocky Mountain Seeds at? Uh, RockyMountainSeeds.org. Perfect. And you can find more information about Seed School at SeedSchoolOnline.com. That's the online version. And you can find out more information about uh, a residential seed school at RockyMountainSeeds.org. And as always, check out UrbanFarmPodcast.com. And if you're so motivated, it costs me about $158 per episode to put these episodes out for you all to listen to. And I'm pretty much paying for that out of my pocket. So if you visit UrbanFarmPodcast.com, Org. You can support the podcast and we would deeply appreciate it. Once again, thank you very much for joining us this evening. And as I always like to say, farm out and we will catch you on the flip side. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. 
It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.